Thanks, everyone. Um, I normally don't speak two weeks in a row for those of you who are guests. It's maybe twice a year or something. But uh, I'm the chair of the worship committee, and we have illnesses happening now, and people who are quarantining for one thing or another. And so you get me again today. Uh, but I think the, the topic is an important one, uh, the legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, each year, we honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King in public gatherings and marches, marches and in a day of service. This year, the holiday is on Monday, January 17th. A few days after Dr. King was killed in 1968, some legislators began working on approval for a federal holiday in honor of Dr. King. The holiday was first celebrated in a national way in 1986 after legislation was approved by Congress and it was signed by President Reagan in 1983. But it was 1993 before every state in the legislature had approved a state holiday for Dr. King in some form. At that time, some states called their holiday Civil Rights Day instead of Martin Luther King Day. By 1999, every state legislature had adopted the third Monday in January as Martin Luther King Day and a state holiday. The holiday to honor Dr. King has not been without controversy and without people trying to minimize his impact on our country. Some of you may remember way back in the 80s, 1987, the Arizona governor rescinded the approval of the holiday Lots of people boycotted the travel to the state. The Super Bowl was moved from Arizona to California in the early 90s because of that. Um, Arizona reaffirmed the holiday through a vote of its citizens in 1992, and they got their Super Bowl back in 1996. Until the year 2000, South Carolina law allowed state workers to choose among MLK Day and two or three Confederate-related holidays. And a few years ago, there were city officials in Biloxi, Mississippi, who referred to the holiday as Great Americans Day in city communications and didn't mention it was Martin Luther King Day. So these controversies remind us of the need for the holiday and the need to keep thinking about and working for equality of opportunity and social justice. The issue of race has been a difficult one through the history of our country. It's still a difficult issue. Some of the discrimination we see now is blatant, outright mistreatment of people of color, while some discrimination we see is more subtle, such as suspicion of a person who is different or an institutionalized unfairness of some of our laws or subtle discrimination that can be seen in a paternalistic treatment that the majority who are powerful or the powerful we know better than some without power. Or discrimination may be seen when fewer financial resources are given to inner city schools or, or schools with large populations of people of color. Or, one more example, people not being chosen for promotions or jobs because of stereotypes. It's very troubling that some successes in equal opportunity and racial equality that were made in the past have been lost in recent years. It seems like we're moving backwards in many ways on this issue. Violence against people of color and a political environment that allows for the most hateful racist rhetoric to be spoken makes me wonder if we can ever find that place of justice Dr. King described. So here we are in 1922, still trying to learn the lessons of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and knowing that making real lasting progress on issues of race and economic justice will require us to stay awake, as Dr. King said. King said, but today our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant and to face the challenge of change. The large house in which we live demands that we transform this worldwide neighborhood into a worldwide brotherhood. He said, together we must learn to live as brothers, or together we will be forced to perish as fools.
The title of the talk today is The Legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a very, very big topic, and a topic that's often discussed by people who walked with Dr. King in Selma or they were present for his I Have a Dream speech. Listen to some of these reflections of people who knew Dr. King talk about his legacy. Reverend Horace Sheffield, a minister in Detroit and the son of a colleague of Dr. King, said that he sees King's legacy as understanding that life is about doing something for someone else. It's not about self. There's a quote that's attributed to Coretta Scott King about King's legacy and the importance of the MLK holiday. She said, on this holiday, we commemorate the universal, unconditional love, forgiveness, and nonviolence that empowered his revolutionary spirit. We commemorate Dr. King's inspiring words because his voice and his vision filled a great void in our nation and answered our collective longing to become a country that truly lived by its noblest ideas. And she said, yet Dr. King knew that it wasn't enough just to talk the talk. He had to walk the walk for his words to be credible. And so to commemorate on this holiday, the man of action who put his life on the line for freedom and justice every day, the man who braved threats and jail and beatings, and who ultimately paid the highest price to make democracy a reality for all Americans. That was Coretta Scott King. It was 54 years ago that Dr. King was killed. This holiday, this commemoration, and our celebration of this man's life work is very close to many people today. It's close in the sense that it's important, and it's close in the sense that Dr. King lived and impacted our lives really not so long ago. Many people in this room will remember Dr. King on the news and will remember him visiting the cities where you lived. Some of you in the congregation participated in marches maybe during the 50s and the 60s. Some of you were children or teenagers who were impacted by the separateness of society at the time. Others maybe were younger and, if, and have since lived since there's always been a Martin Luther King holiday. Whoever you are and whatever your life experience, with events of the civil rights movement and movement for economic justice, it's clear that this history is not so distant and it's clear that there is still much work to do. Now, as you know, when I speak here, I generally have some kind of Mayberry-esque story from my childhood. Might have an amusing joke or two and maybe some music lyrics at some point. I'm not sure about the joke this time because this is a pretty serious topic, but I think I, I can deliver on the story and, and the song lyric. Um, I like to frame my thoughts by putting them in the context of stories. I hope that my stories will remind you of the stories of your life. And in this case, consider how your life was impacted and shaped by Dr. King and the movement for equality and civil rights for African Americans. When I first heard these song lyrics by Kate Campbell a few years ago, I thought this described my life as a child during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. She wrote, I was taught by elders wiser, love your neighbor, love your God. Never saw a cross on fire, never saw an angry mob. I saw sweet magnolia blossoms. I chased lightning bugs at night, never dreaming others saw our way of life in black and white. But there were angry mobs, and there were crosses on fire. There were people beaten, killed. People's lives were changed forever for no reason other than the color of their skin. It's difficult to watch the brutality in the newsreels from those years. Think of the courage that so many people who protested showed, both African-American citizens and white citizens, in the face of the unspeakable acts taken against them. 
While we can all know how it feels to be the other in a group of people, we can never know how it felt to be the person of color walking peacefully for freedom and justice and for civil rights after their family had endured generations of being owned as property. We can never know the terror of their children who wondered if mom or dad would be coming home that evening. I can look at this time in history and I can see it from where I was then. My perspective and my life were impacted, but only as an observer, and really as an observer after the fact when I learned about the history as a teenager and as an adult. Even so, my life was shaped by the events of those days, and I expect this is true for you as well. I was impacted in small and large ways, and those events helped shape the person that I am today. Race issues were not quite so simple as the song said for kids like me in the 60s, life was magnolia blossoms and it was catching lightning bugs at night, but it was more complicated too. I was born in 1958 in a small town in Northeast Mississippi. As a young child, I saw separate water fountains in the, court, in the county courthouse. I could read that one said white, the other said colored. And I remember asking my mother where the people who were not white went to the restroom at the courthouse because there was a whites only sign on the door as well. The answer, there was no place. And I told you a story last week about the kindergarten teacher um, that told me that some of the students had told me I was segregated because I had on pants instead of a dress and they wouldn't play with me. Um, the sad part of that story is that a five-year-old knew the word segregation and the definition of it and wanted to put it into play on the kindergarten playground. I remember having to take home a card each year for my parents to sign and check whether I wanted to go to the school for black children, call the attendance center, or if I wanted to continue going to my school. This was the way Mississippi delayed school integration since everyone had a choice. I, remembering what, I remember wondering what would happen if I checked the box for the attendance center. Two black children began attending our school in the late 60s at their, after their parents checked the box for our school. I didn't know them, they were younger than me, but they didn't seem so different than all the other students at the school. Then in 1970, our schools were finally integrated and I attended seventh grade at the attendance center. And I met black children for the first time and I made lots of new friends. Then I got a, uh, as I got a little older, a few things started happening that make, made me more aware of sort of the everyday inequality and mistreatment. Uh, I learned in a very real way that there was not equality and there was not equal opportunity or equal treatment for everyone. When I was about 18, an older woman in my, in my town deferred to me in the drugstore. She apologized to me and called me miss when I stepped close to her at the counter. This seemed strange to me because I was so much younger uh, than she was and I was the one who'd stepped too close to her getting into her space. Uh, she had learned to defer, even when she should not have to do so. And then once in the late 70s, I went to a place called the Shady Nook Key Club in the Mississippi Delta with a friend who was working on a news story. This was a restaurant that only wanted to serve white people, so they locked the door and they looked out a window before letting you in, making sure you were the correct color first. It felt oppressive to wrong and wrong to be in that space. That kind of separateness of people of color uh, was wrong. 1979, that happened. I met a man named James Son Thomas in the late 70s. He was a blues singer who had some success in Europe in the 60s and in the US in the 80s. 
unscrupulous managers made sure uh, that he did not keep financial rewards for his talents. In the late 70s, he lived in a two-room shack with no electricity and no water. We drove 45 miles to Leland, Mississippi to bring him to our dorm to sing. We always bought him dinner, a bottle of whiskey, and we gave him $40 for his time. He had a small amp and a guitar, and he used a pop bottle slide, a broken um, glass coat bottle, to play his music. He sang songs like Bumblebee and Sugar Mama Blues. He sometimes changed the words, because he thought, quite frankly, we were too young. He said we hadn't lived enough, enough yet to hear the real lyrics. The dorm lobby was always packed with college kids, black and white, and we all felt the blues when he sang. This was a good lesson that there's something to learn from everyone. Mr. Thomas brought, me, brought home to me the disparity of the lives of people, black and white, poor and middle class. It simply made no sense that his opportunities to be successful were less than mine. My parents shielded me from some of the terrible news and happenings in Mississippi and in the South and around the country related to race, as any good parent would do, related to their young children. I remember when I was 10 and Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis. Memphis is about an hour and a half from my hometown. It was quiet for days and days. There were lots of whispers by the adults. We were not allowed to watch the news for several weeks. I remember the quietness of the time and the concern on the faces of the adults. When Dr. King died, I was too young to understand the importance of this man. I didn't understand what was lost that day in the work towards civil rights and economic justice. I did know that change had arrived and our world was different because of his leadership. You could feel it in the air in 1968, an understanding that our future would be very different than our past. Some words that Joan Baez sang at some of the civil rights marches during that time have this feeling that there would be no stopping the march for civil rights, for justice, for freedom. She sang, ain't nobody gonna turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Keep on a walking, keep on a talking, gonna build a brand new world. Putting our own experiences into the context of historical events and leaders like King can help us understand how we have been personally changed and impacted by social and historical movements. As a young child, I was very impacted by the entrenched bigotry, mistreatment, and hate. And I continue to be very impacted as an adult by these issues knowing the opportunity and privilege that I've been given that has been kept from others. Think about how children grow up today, uh, growing up today will learn about racism and economic justice. Yes, they'll learn about Dr. King, but there's more. Amadou DeLeo, Trayvon Martin, Manuel Loggins Jr., Ronald Madison, Kenda James, Sean Bell, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, Sterling, George Floyd. Each of those people I named was a black man or woman who died at the hands of police. These names I listed represent only a handful of such cases since 1999, when DeLeo, an unarmed man standing in a New York City doorway, was gunned down by officers who erroneously thought he had a gun. The death of Brown, who was shot by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, resulted in nationwide protest against what civil rights advocates said is law enforcement's tendency to be overly aggressive when dealing with black men. Remember the protest in 2017 by white nationalists in Charlotte 
and the white nationalists who had planned to protest in Murfreesboro a few years ago, but they decided to stay away. If you look at the data just from 2021, reports are that at least 200 black people were killed by police officers this past year. People are speaking up in response to the violence by police against people of color. People protest and groups are taking action to right this wrong. In recent times, some of the police officers are being held criminally accountable for wrongful killings. And citizens have organized movements about equality and equal treatment of others like Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter became nationally recognized for its street demonstrations following the 2014 deaths of two African-Americans, Michael Brown and Eric Garner. The Black Lives Matter movement was co-founded by three um, black community organizers, uh, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullers, and Opal Tometi. Yes, the movement most associated with Dr. King from more than 50 years ago continues. New faces and new leaders are working to solve many of the same issues that Dr. King helped to make progress on in the 60s. In an article from The Atlantic, the author says, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail ripples and echoes through much of the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, the civil rights initiative from Dr. King and others impact that movement. But the movement is also different. It's a movement for the 21st century. King said, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is more bewildering than outright rejection. Tometi, using King's language, said, the Black Lives Movement has run out of patience with the tolerance of shallow understanding from people of goodwill. The awaiting of a more convenient season and the acceptance of order at the expense of justice. Dr. King taught us many values through his actions. He was a person of compassion, of courage, and of dignity. He was a person who lived his convictions. He didn't just tell us what he thought. He lived his beliefs. What an example for us to be who we are, to work on behalf of others, and to care deeply about what is right and good and just. In a sermon on February 4, 1968, at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. King told the congregation that he, what he hoped his legacy would be. He said, I'd like somebody to mention on that day Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to love and serve humanity. An obvious legacy of Dr. King's work is the passage of the civil rights, federal civil rights legislation. He led the, led the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. This was his first test of the use of civil disobedience and the quest for civil rights for African Americans. Then in 1963, he wrote his letter from the Birmingham City Jail about the necessity for disobeying unjust laws, and he delivered his I Have a Dream speech in Washington that same year. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed after those events. Then in 1965, after the march from Selma to Montgomery, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I think there is more to the legacy that Dr. King gave us through his work, life's work than legislation, and I'll talk briefly about five things. I think first he gave us hope. Second, he gave us an instruction and a model on how to take nonviolent action. Third, he spoke truth to power. Um, he also uh, talked about leadership for social change, and he challenged us to make commitment 
uh, to help others. So let's talk about hope for a couple of minutes. During his life, I think Dr. King helped African-American people who had not been given a real chance to be free, a belief in themselves and their abilities. He helped them understand that life could be better. He inspired people to work on their own behalf and to build a more just world. And I think Dr. King also gave hope to those of us not mistreated because of our race, that we can all be partners in this society and we can all do well together. In that iconic photo of Dr. King that we often see in news stories, we can see the sincerity and the hope in his eyes, even the expectation that everything will be made right one day. That photo makes me smile, reminds me to continue to have hope for a world more fair. For all people to be judged, as Dr. King said, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have hope that we will continue to make progress inequality and economic justice issues related to race and ethnicity. I have hope that someday if we continue to work at it, civil rights and economic justice will be expected for everyone, no matter our race, ethnicity, gender identity, religion, or sexual orientation. Now let's think about instruction to nonviolent civil disobedience. Dr. King showed us by examples that monumental change can occur through nonviolent means. He said nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wills it. He said it is a sword that heals. King traveled to India in 1959 to learn about Gandhi's use of civil disobedience to end British rule in India, and he used these lessons in the work towards civil rights for African Americans. Gandhi had learned about this technique um, from the writings of Henry David Thoreau. Of course, Thoreau wrote Civil Disobedience in 1849, stating that since we as individuals grant power to the state, that it is also our responsibility to oppose unjust laws through civil disobedience. In the last years of Dr. King's life, he was setting up offices in the North and the Midwest, and he was working for economic justice. The Poor People's March was in the planning stages when Dr. King died, and he was also talking about his opposition to the Vietnam War. I wonder how our history may have been different if Dr. King had been able to lead the nonviolent movement for economic justice and for maybe an early end to the war in Vietnam. The lessons of nonviolence in the civil rights movement can be used today as we work towards social justice issues. The Side with Love initiative at the UUA is a good example of the continued use of nonviolent means to bring about social change whether working for immigration rights, Black Lives Matter, or other social issues, we can continue our efforts through nonviolent means and know we can make progress. Dr. King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. The third point, Dr. King had strong opinions and he stated those even when some in his group thought he should be less direct. He spoke truth to power. Here are a couple of examples. At the Riverside Church in New York in 1967, he talked about the Vietnam War. He said, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. He said, we're taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and we're sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we've been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony, he said, of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens 
as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. Here's another uh, example of speaking truth to power. During a sermon in Ebenezer Baptist Church in 1965, Dr. King talked about economic justice. He said, about two years ago now, I stood with many of you who stood there in person and some of you who were there in spirit before the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. And he said, as I came to the end of my speech, I tried to tell the nation about a dream I had. I must confess to you this morning that since that sweltering August afternoon in 1963, my dream has often turned to a nightmare. I've seen my dream shattered as I've walked the streets of Chicago and seen Negroes, young men and women, with a sense of utter hopelessness because they can't find any jobs. He said, I've seen my dream shattered as I've been through Appalachia and I've seen my white brothers along with Negroes living in poverty. And I'm concerned about white poverty as much as I'm concerned about Negro poverty, he said. How are you going to have a multiracial democracy if inequality makes life so harsh and competitive at the bottom, where society is the most multiracial and multinational? Yes, Dr. King was willing to tell it like it was, and his words had impact. Uh, fourth point, Dr. King modeled leadership for, the, for a social movement. He said this, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. A leader is not just a person searching for power for power's sake, but a person who helps to mold the opinions of a group into an effective action to get something done. A real leader also helps others learn to lead. An organization or movement that continues long-term will have a leader who mentors others and ensures that others can lead the cause when he or she cannot. Dr. King said on April 3rd, 1968, one day before he was killed, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But he said, I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. He said, I may not go there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Dr. King knew that he could depend on others to take the lead in the movement for change if he could not. A few days after Dr. King's death, his followers showed that they could continue the work using nonviolent means. You may remember that Dr. King was in Memphis on April the 4th, 1968, in support of the sanitation workers who were on strike there. On April the 8th, in a testament to his followers' belief in Dr. King's nonviolent approach, they marched in Memphis to mourn King's death, even in the sorrow and the anger of the events. There was no violence that day. Following an excerpt, following is an excerpt from a Memphis newspaper, The Commercial Appeal, from April the 9th. Note that some of the news reports that day said there were 40,000 marchers in attendance. Uh, this particular news story says there were 19,000. Here's what the Commercial Appeal um, journalist wrote. The nonviolent teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. yesterday guided 19,000 mourners. They marched silently down Main Street to City Hall, heard his widow challenge them to see, what his, to see that his spirit never dies, and then dispersed as quietly as they came without a single incident. They came on foot from North and South Memphis and by chartered jet from across the nation, North and South. They wore $50 a pair of high heels, and mud-coated work, work shoes, black morning veils, and beatnik sunglasses. Dirge-like notes of We Shall Overcome were still echoing between City Hall and the 100 North Main Building when the throng began 
to trickle away in all directions five hours after, down, after the downtown march began. Dr. King had left the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in good hands. Others there knew how to lead and continue the work that needed to be done. Ralph Abernathy, the new head of the group, repeatedly called for calm after King's death. He urged people to respect Dr. King's commitment to nonviolent protest. But, as you know, for a time, peace did not prevail. The grief and the anger were too great, the sorrow too much. Violence after King's death spilled into the streets in more than 100 U.S. cities. But the new leaders of the movement had learned the issues, learned the lessons of nonviolent action from Dr. King, and they had learned well how to take the movement to the next steps and to take care of the coalition of people working for civil rights. Um, King also challenged us to have a personal commitment to serve others. He was committed to all the efforts toward equality to serve other people. He said this, Human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. And he said the tireless exertions and passionate concerns of dedicated individuals. He challenged people then to get involved and to be on the side of freedom and equality. And many people stood on the sidelines and they watched, but they didn't participate. Because it took courage to be an active participant because hate had the potential to create so much violence. Not everyone could march, but everyone could do something that they could do. King said, history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but it was the appalling silence of the good people. This statement challenges us today to not stand on the sidelines of life. If we need to march to draw attention to injustice, let's march. If marching is not in my comfort zone, let me find the thing that I can do to participate in to make things right. I don't ever want to hear it said about me that I was a good person, but I stood silent when I needed to speak, or that I stood still when I needed to take action. So let's rethink this question as a summary. What is Dr. King's legacy? Sure, it's the laws, laws for equality and civil rights that were passed due to his leadership, but his legacy is much more than that. He saw a world that was unjust, and he led the way to getting changes made. He helped make progress. He helped move that moral arc of the universe toward justice. Dr. King lives on in others' remembrances of him and the good that he did to make a difference in the world. We learned his model for nonviolent action and for good principle leadership. And more recent movements for equality have taken those lessons from King's leadership, along with the passion and knowledge of their members and founders, to continue the important work for racial justice. And we maintain our hope that we can have a world more fair, but it'll be up to us to be involved for, and to be active, to have commitment and courage of our convictions. One of these more recent movements is called Moral Mondays. Uh, they began in April 2013, and these are protests that happened in North Carolina at the General Assembly, and it turned into a movement gaining national attention. Uh, this movement is led by Reverend Dr. William Barber. Progressives from across the state have been holding vigils to call attention to both state and national issues, to what Barber calls a mean-spirited attack on the most vulnerable. Moral Monday protests are about unemployment benefits being cut, taxes being increased for poor and working families, lack of health care funding, lack of funding for public schools, and ensuring voting rights. Reverend Barber said this, 
It's not enough to conquer the opposition. In a nonviolent struggle, we're committed to fight on until our adversaries become our friends. So the work continues. Um, of course, I know that many of us have become disheartened and have lost hope that the U.S., in the U.S., we can be a country that provides a quality of treatment, of opportunity, and freedom. Right now, we can't seem to get the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act passed. We can't seem to take serious steps to stop violence by police against black people. We can't seem to have the will to provide economic justice in our society. Many of us are angry, too, but the movement is out there still. People of conscience are in this fight for the long term. People who work for a world more fair with all her people won have the correct goal, but we do have to be active to make it so. Dr. King taught us the type of people we should strive to be. When he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, Dr. King said, we must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. He said that method is love. Dr. King's message is always about love, whether he's talking about racial equality, our economic justice, our war, or about God. The message is love. Listen to these statements made by Dr. King. That old law about an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. At the center of nonviolence stands the principle of love. Hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. And he said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. We must all love one another. That's Dr. King's message, love. Think of all the tragedies, large and small, we can avoid if we can ever get this one right consistently. Dr. King said this about the song, We Shall Overcome. He said, there's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the South. You know, I've joined hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing that song, We Shall Overcome. He said, sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it, We Shall Overcome. He said, oh, before this victory's won, some will have to get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. You know the song. It's a song of resolution, a song of hope, a song of togetherness, a song of freedom, a song of peace, a song that reminds us there is work to do. We'll walk hand in hand. We shall all be free. We shall live in peace. We shall overcome someday. Thank you.